The reading for this evening is from 1 Kings 17, verses 7 to 24, and that's on pages 3, 5, 8. Some time later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will be not used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the lurge of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord comes from your mouth in truth. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I'm not a weather forecaster, nor am I a prophet. But if I were to say, I expect good weather this week, after what we've had, 
and after what I've seen of the flooding at the bottom of the hill, you would expect something dry and sunny. But not so for Elijah. Elijah had had enough bright and sunny. For three and a half years, there was such strong sun, such lack of rain, that the whole country was enveloped in drought and the people in famine. It's a couple of weeks now since uh, Neil preached on the earlier part of this story in 1 Kings 17. He reminded us that the history is that after King David's son Solomon had left the throne, the kingdom was divided because of the wickedness of Solomon into two parts, the northern part and the southern part. The southern part was called Judah and the northern part retained the name of Israel. Elijah is a prophet to the northern part called Israel. And if you look in your Bible at chapter 16 and chapter at verse 33, you will see that uh, the king of the time, King Ahab, was a very wicked man indeed. He did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. He was the worst of a bad lot, you may say. Suddenly, a man appears without any introduction and stands before the king. Chapter 17 and verse 1 tells us this man, Elijah, appears. And he confronts the king, and in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, he says there's going to be a real problem. And the problem is going to be the lack of rain until God says so. You'll promise, uh, explain to us as well that the one thing we do know about Elijah is what his name means. His name means that Jehovah or Yahweh is God. And it's all about God that Elijah has things to say to us. God sent him to hide in a place not very far from where he lived in the Kerith Ravine, we're told here. And God looked after him and gave him water from the brook and fed him by an unusual way of birds bringing him something to eat. Now we're going to take this up, up this story at chapter 17 and verse 8 and read through to the end of the chapter because here you will find that the stream dries up and so God moves Elijah from the brook Kerith to a place we've not heard of before called Zarephath. Well, it was nearly a hundred miles away from where he was. It was a journey up the Jordan and across the other side and right out to the coast because this place where he was sent to was near the port of Sidon and it was not even in the nation of Israel at all. It was in Phoenicia. My interest and our interest this evening is not in the geography of the land of Israel, nor even in the history 
of the events themselves. But I want to use this story to help us tonight to think about God. You see, like uh, many of you here, when we were very young Christians and we started reading the Scripture Union notes, there was a little piece of information in the front saying, when you start reading the Bible, you should ask yourself these questions. What does it tell me about God? And that's the question I want to look at with you this evening from this passage. What does it tell me today about God that's going to help me through this week? And I want to look with you at three lessons which we're going to find here in this story. First of all, God shows us here the amazing scope of his love. Then God shows us two remarkable examples of his power. And then God shows us the vital truth of his word. These are not difficult things to grasp, but they're very important things for us to carry forward into the week ahead. So we're going to look at them one in turn about his amazing love, his remarkable power and the truth of his word. First of all, that this story shows us the amazing scope of God's love. Now clearly, God loves Elijah. That's on the surface of this story, isn't it? Because Elijah is the man who is going to be used by God in a remarkable way. We'll see that in a moment. And so, God has to look after him. And he looks after him because he loves him. If you want God to look after you, it's good to start with the fact that he loves you. He loves us and so he looks after us. And he looked after Elijah. These were days of, uh, of national famine. And so God says, I need to look after this man. And so he, first of all, supplies his need by the uh, Kerith regime in this unusual way. But then when that dries up, in verse 7, sometime later the brook dried up, there'd been no rain in the land, so God says, I'll move him, and I'll move him somewhere else. And God is preparing Elijah for something which you'll see in chapter 18 and verse 16. The heading in the Bible I have in front of me is Elijah on Mount Carmel. This is the great conflict of Elijah's life. This is the great event for which we may say Elijah was called by God. And God is going to keep him for that. And through these three and a half years, God is keeping Elijah by providing food for him and providing everything that he needs. Why God moved him from where he was to a place called Zarephath, nearly a hundred miles away, we'll see in a moment. But it's a reminder to us, isn't it, that sometimes God moves us. Sometimes he says, I don't want you to stay here, I want you to go there. All of us at some time or other have moved house, or moved home, or moved church, or moved job, and these moves are not always welcome. They're not always just next door. Sometimes they're farther away. But we have to say all the time, God loves us. And if he moves us, it's because he has some reason for doing that. And he has a reason for doing it to Elijah. 
And when we see these things happening in our lives and other people's lives, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that God is doing this because he loves his people and he's looking after them because he has something good for them to do in the future. But then we meet this widow, this foreigner, this woman in verse 9. He went to Zarephath of Sidon and when he came to the town gate a widow was there gathering sticks. Now he expected to find a widow because God had said I've got somebody there who's going to look after you. Whether he expected to find a rich woman I don't know, you might expect so but instead he meets a very poor woman a woman in such dire trouble that she thinks she's about to die. But God loves her too. And God's going to provide for her. And he's going to do unusual things for her. These were not days when there was social security, so if she's a widow and no husband, she had a widow's pension. It wasn't because there was some uh, food uh, program going on in the land, as we've heard here, about food being given out in Haiti. There was no one giving out food, and so she was coming to the end of her resources. But God loves her. But the striking thing about this story is that God loves her although she is a foreigner. She's not one of the covenant people of Israel. She lives in a place called Sidon and that very place, Zarephath, is where Jezebel came from. It wasn't a nice place at all. That wicked woman Jezebel came from there. And you know, we don't know her name but she gets some mention In the New Testament. Please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel according to Luke. It's page 1031, I think, in the Bible. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus has been talking about his own ministry as the promised servant of God, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then, if you look at chapter 4, and verse uh, 25 of Luke 4, this is what Jesus says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any one of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Jesus draws to our attention the fact that this woman is loved by God though she's a foreigner. And God's going to provide for her and do wonderful things for her. Now why should that be important? Why should that be something that matters to us? Well, it's because we have to remind ourselves when we see these stories in the Bible that God loves all kinds of people. He did then, and he does today. Now, we are apt to think that uh, if God loves people, he's going to love the nice ones. After all, that's what we do. We find it easier to love the nice ones than the ones that aren't so nice. But God loves the whole world. And he loves all the people that he has made. Some of them dress differently from us. Some of them look differently from us. 
They smell differently from us. They eat things that we wouldn't think about eating. And they speak in languages that we can't understand. And the people who are different from us are very hard for us to get our head around the fact that God loves them too. But it is a Bible fact that God loves all kinds of people. And although the Old Testament is all about God's love for Israel as his special people, even the Old Testament shows us that there are times when God goes out of his way to say it's not only the people of Israel, but all the people that he loves. So you get in the Old Testament the story of of this woman Ruth, who is a Jordanian Arab, and yet she comes into the covenant of God's people and has a significant place in the life and birth of the Lord Jesus. You get Jesus when he's here on the, on the earth. What does he do? He wants to give an example of a good man. So he takes his man from Samaria. And he wants to show a woman about the importance of his being the living water. And he goes to a Samaritan woman. And Jesus goes out of his way to show that his love is not limited to the people that are closest and near to us, but even those that we might think astonishing he should care about them at all. The Bible is full of such examples. Let me give you an example, which I came across last week. I had lunch with a, a, a young lady who works at the Wycliffe Centre, and she was telling me what she's training to do in High Wycombe in her spare time. She's training to join a team of people who go out onto the streets of High Wycombe at night and invite people to go to night shelters that the churches have set up. This is a team of Christians and they see people who have got nowhere to sleep at night. Now, we all have got somewhere to sleep tonight and I hope you're going to be as comfortable as I am. But there are people who are out there even on a wet night like this and they don't know where they're going to sleep. For those people... It's not an earthquake, but what's hit them is just as bad as an earthquake. It's some tragedy in their family, it's some drink problem, it's some drug situation, or whatever it is. And here is this young woman, she's going out to show these people that God loves them. Now, I admire her for that. It's not an easy thing to do, is it? She says, they know that if they fight, we won't give them a bed. So they don't fight us but they do an awful lot of things that you would feel very distasteful and difficult to deal with. Why is she doing it? Because she knows what God is saying here, that God loves all kinds of people. And one of the dangers is that when we see people who have messed up, when we see people who are in the kind of situations we are glad we're not in, we're apt to think, well, God isn't going to care about them. Or sometimes our own lives get messed up. And we are tempted to feel God's not going to care about me anymore. God loves the most unusual people because God loves all the people that he has made. This is a lesson that we must underline here. The amazing scope of the love of God all over the world. There are sinners like us who deserve to be judged and to be sent into everlasting punishment. But he loves them and he's concerned for them. And that's a basic Bible truth and something that matters to all of us during this week. The second thing we're going to see here 
is how God shows us two remarkable examples of his power. Two remarkable examples of his power. The first is his power to work miracles and provide food. Now we've seen already that this widow thinks she's going to die. And so she says, I'm just getting a few sticks together. We're going to make a fire. I'm going to use what little food I have and then that'll be our last meal for myself and my son. But God encourages her through the words of Elijah, and Elijah says, yes, go and do that, but do something first. Before, just make a little cake for me, and then go and make the meal that you wanted for your own family. And then he has this remarkable thing to say. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said, verse 14. The jar of flour will not be used up the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the earth. Now, she's a foreigner. She doesn't know much about Elijah. She doesn't know much about God. But here he is saying, you're going to have enough to eat because God's going to provide for you in this remarkable way. I can imagine her making the first meal because she'd got enough for that. But what was she going to do the next day? What do you think she felt like as she went to that place where the flour was. And there was still some there. And the jug with the oil in, and there was still some there. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and it goes on and on and on, because God is providing for her and providing for them in a truly remarkable way, all the time. This happened exactly as God said. God can work miracles to provide food. He'd already done something remarkable when Elijah was at the Keris Ravine, wasn't he? Because he'd sent, uh, he'd sent food there by the animals, by the, by the birds bringing it rather. Now he's using this supply that she has and it goes on and on and on. The only explanation is God is at work. But then, verse 17 says, something worse happened. Then, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. Tragedy strikes. Not only is the boy ill, but the boy dies. And here again, God is at work. Elijah knows what to do. Elijah says, give me your son. He takes him from her arms and carries him to the upper room and he cries out to God. And he says to God, this boy is dead. I want you to make him alive again. And God does it. Exactly as he'd hoped he would. And so he's able to take the boy back to the woman and say, he's alive now. Now God does truly remarkable things in the Old Testament, doesn't he? The Bible is full of stories about God doing things like this. Now, of course, in one sense, 
what is really happening here is a preparation for chapter 18 and verse 16, isn't it? Because Elijah, as far as we know, had not had any examples of great miracles being done through his life before. We're not told that before chapter 17 and verse 1. But now, during this chapter, he's proving God by uh, proving God in the life of one man. Now he's going to have to prove God on a much greater national scale with all the prophets of Baal against him. And, and he's needing to, to learn how that God can do miraculous, marvellous things. He's strengthening Elijah's faith. But I don't know whether you agree with me. I don't find this business of miracles too easy to apply. Because I'm going to say to you that God is the same God today. But I don't really think you would expect Jacqueline to say, we don't need to put flour on the list this week. I want to carry on baking bread for you, but we don't need flour. The says in the Bible, you can have flour day after day. All you need to do is ask God to do it, and he'll do it. We don't need to buy oil this week. We'll have enough, won't we? That isn't sensible, is it? No more sensible than me saying, do you know, I think I'll ask permission to go to the mortuary and see whether I can find some people who have just died and pray for them. God can do miracles, can't he? How do we apply all of this? It's not so easy. I'm going to tell you a true story. It comes from a little book that I've kept. It's, uh, I've had it for 40 years, but it's about something that goes back a lot longer. A hundred years ago, a man called Herbert White, a Christian man, felt God saying to him he should be looking after children who don't have homes. And so he started a mission towards children in Woodford in Essex. And he began to collect some of these children and provide for them. He believed God was saying to him, you needn't advertise, you needn't ask anything, God will provide for everything you need for these children. Now, I didn't know it at that time, although I am, but I do know a bit about the story. In this picture, there's uh, 50 children, and that was uh, 10 years after they started. And the whole thing is full of remarkable stories. Let me just re- read one to you called The Landlord Brings His Own Rent. The landlord called once a quarter to pay a friendly visit and to collect the rent. On one occasion, when he was due, Mr. White was concerned as sufficient money was not in hand to pay the rent. Very earnest prayer was made that God, in his own way, would meet that commitment. The appointed day came, and so did the landlord. But Herbert White still didn't have enough money. During the conversation with the landlord, he was lifting his heart to God that in some way the money might be forthcoming before the end of the interview. In the course of their chat, the landlord said, My father is very interested in your homes, and he's had a collecting box, and he's asked me to bring the collecting box for you to open. When the money came in the box was counted, it was found to be the exact amount required to make up the deficit. 
So God had his own way of supplying his children's need, even causing the landlord to bring his own rent. That testimony has gone on through the years. And they haven't advertised, and they haven't asked for a lot of money. If you look at their website now, it's called Mill Grove. It is the most plain and basic website you can get. It's not talking about all the great needs and how you can give. This work has been sustained by God all through the years. Now, when they had a 50th celebration, and I wasn't there for that either, when they had a 50th celebration, they had a special service and they asked a man I did know well, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, to preach a sermon. And he preached, and here I have an account of his sermon. And he says something very, very interesting. What he says is that Herbert White had been given the gift of faith. And he says that if you look in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9, amongst the gifts of the Spirit, there is the gift of faith. Now, Dr. Lloyd-Jones says this isn't the gift of saving faith, Because we all have that, otherwise we wouldn't be Christians. But some people are given special faith for special circumstances. And he says, that man was given this special faith. Now, any gift that anyone has in the church is not just for themselves, it's for the benefit of the whole body. And so the preacher said, the whole body, all of us must benefit from this man's faith. And so he says, what do we find here? Why did God raise up his servant to do this work? It's a proof of the being of God, he says. It's a proof of the power of the lordship of God over his whole whole of his life. It's a proof of the truth of scripture. It's proving to us, you see, that this God, who did miracles then, and sometimes does miracles now, is the God we believe in. And then he applies it in this way. We must emphasize the encouragement and strength we all experience as we come into contact with this work. If your faith is not strengthened as you listen to this story, there must be something radically wrong with you. As Christians, we should be encouraged to believe in God, to trust him more fully, to believe his word, to rely on it, to be assured of what the Holy Spirit can do in and through us if we yield and surrender ourselves to him. The main function of this work in the last analysis is to bring us to contemplate God in all his glory, might and power and love. That's what miracles are for. Not to say we can do any miracle we like, but to say God has remarkable power and this is the God that we need in our lives This coming week. We mustn't limit him. We mustn't say, we won't ask him for this. We mustn't say, that's too big a thing for God to do. God has shown us through the miracles in Elijah's day, through the mighty resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, through what he's done in many other stories that we could hear, that God is this God today. And we need to know that. And we need to believe it. The third lesson I want to bring to you from this chapter, it shows us the vital truth of God's word. Did you notice as it was being read to us? At every point, the word of the Lord 
is crucial. Just look down in your Bible first, will you? Verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him. Verse 14, this is what the, the Lord, the God of Israel says. Verse 16, the jar of flour was not used up, the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. And eventually, verse, chapter 18 and verse 1, after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. The Old Testament prophets were men who were God's spokesmen. spokesmen. They heard what God said and they spoke the word of the Lord to the people. From Samuel in the temple, hearing God's word for the first time, passing it on to those around him. You get people like Jeremiah in prison, Daniel in a royal palace. These are men who know God and are speaking God's word. It even says in the New Testament, doesn't it, that Elijah was a man just like us. But he heard God's word and he spoke God's word trusting in this extraordinary God. That's why I want you to look at verse 24 of this chapter, the last verse of the chapter, the importance of this widow's testimony. We don't know her name, but we know the conclusion she drew from all that we've been looking at. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. You meet him in verse 1 as an unknown man from Tishbe. The punchline of the chapter is the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. He's going to need that, isn't he, on Mount Carmel. He's going to need to know that the word of God is the powerful message that's going to destroy all those false prophets and establish God as the God of Israel again. What really matters through this chapter is what God is doing through his word. Now, we don't have prophets like that today. But we do have someone who is our prophet. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the source of the word of God for us today. He's called the word His ministry is to preach God's word. He comes to take up the challenge against all the false gods of our day. And we see them working so powerfully, don't we? People bowing down to their gods of money and the pursuit of pleasure, of personal fulfillment. We've got all the false gods being preached to us by the media, where no longer people base their attitudes and their actions and their views on God's word. But we could say of the Lord Jesus what this woman said about Elijah. Now we know that Jesus is the man of God, that the word of the Lord from his mouth is the truth. We just try to think about a few things that happened last week where we see this contrast so clearly. There have been these discussions, haven't there, about 
assisted suicide and about mercy killing. These things which are really important in our society. But are they taking into account the fact of what Jesus says about judgment after death? About the importance of eternity? Are they taking any notice of what God in his word says about these awesome issues? No, they're not. We have lies being brought to us and even governments try to make their laws without taking any account of God's word. Who are we going to believe? Well, we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the truth. And there's all this understandable concern that we have about what is taught in schools, about homosexual conduct. And here are matters which do affect our own families, our children, our grandchildren. It's directly contrary to what the Bible is teaching. And God's word has so much to say to us. And Jesus is the one who says, I am the way, the truth and the life. It's the Lord Jesus who has the boldness to say, I'm the only way. The other religions that you see all around us, they're not going to get us anywhere as far as peace with God in eternity. Jesus says, I'm the only way. And he's the one who speaks the truth when he says, come to me and I will give you rest. He's the one who says, you can come into a fellowship with God now. You can have your problems solved and your sins forgiven and your security for eternity by coming to me. And the Lord Jesus says this, not speculatively, as if it might be, but confidently, because he is the truth. This chapter is full of powerful reminders that when God speaks, it's true and it happens. This story then from 1 Kings 17 is a good example of how you and I should read our Bibles every day. Certainly how we should listen to preaching when we come here. We shouldn't be saying, we really got to get this geography right to make sure we know exactly where Kerith is and where Zarephath is and how long it would have taken Elijah to walk from there to there. Our concern must be, what is this telling me about God? And clearly, three things that matter to me this week, that his love is for all kinds of people even those we don't expect. His power is remarkable. It even includes his ability to do miracles. Nothing's too hard for me to ask him. His truth is the ultimate sanction for what I should believe and for what I should do. His truth in Jesus is majestic in authority. And believe me, my life's going to be much better because I believe these things during the week ahead.